bridges. They represent the, the crossing from one side to another. And after all, isn't that what we talk about all the time here on Spooky South Coast when we're talking about ghosts? We're talking about crossing from one side of existence to the other. But there are certain places on this earth and in this country where the bridges are more than just that metaphysical representation. There's also a physical representation. We'll be talking tonight about haunted bridges with our guest, Rich Newman, here on episode what what number? 480. 480. 480. Episode 480 of Spooky South Coast starts right now. Science Advisor Matt Moniz and Stephanie Burke here broadcasting live on WBSM as well as on YouTube on SpookySouthCoast.com through the Spooky South Coast Android app and rebroadcast on the Dark Matter Radio Network. And Matt, I don't want to spoil it, but people have been asking the uh, asking about what they've been asking about the the iOS version of the. Oh, it's working! It's working. What, what's that? What's working? It's working. We're working on it. Oh, yeah, you're yeah, in the process. Right, I thought you right, meant it was right. working now. Yeah, we should have we it. just had this conversation. You said it wasn't working. <laughs> it should uh, It should be um, uh, up on the store. I'm not sure how what the turnover is for Apple when, when you said that stuff, but uh, hopefully it should be up by Christmas. So it would be a nice Christmas present for everyone. There you go. When you get your shiny new Apple device for Christmas, the first thing you can do is download the Spooky South Coast app. But if you're cool and you have Android already, then you can do it now. You don't have to wait. So, because Android is better. That's just the way that it goes. We, I had this uh, conversation earlier with Ken Pittman, because uh, he, he went out and got an iPhone, a new iPhone. We were, we were telling him how, you know, he can't download Spooky South Coast app. So, he was like, well, forget it. I'm going to return the phone. No, he didn't say that, but. He just smashed it. He was just. <laughs> yeah, he was <laughs> like, no. He karate, like, he no karate kicked it. There's no use. Yeah, he just, like, threw it up in the air and, like, gave it a roundhouse kick and then turned around and said, roadhouse. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Spooky South Coast, where, surprisingly, we talk about the paranormal each and every week. Uh, and we will be discussing Haunted Bridges tonight with our guest, Rich Newman, coming up in just a bit. Uh, he's also written uh, a couple of other books as well, and, and we'll get into some of those. When we talk about different possible hauntings, we talk about different places that can be haunted. You know, we look for the bigger places. We look for... The houses, the old factories, the mills, schools, asylums, prisons, hospitals, all these places we look at as being, you know, the potential for hauntings at least. And then you get in and you start to explore them and you find out they, they really are haunted. But here in New England, I think we're a little bit different than the rest of the country because we have a lot of bridges around here that have stories associated with them that become part of our folklore and legend. And in other places around the country, it, it's not as prominent. Uh, 
you know, the, the stories might be out there, but people don't really know them as well as they do around here. Uh, so it'll be interesting to talk with Rich tonight and find out about some of these places. He does have some Massachusetts and New England bridges uh, in the book, but really it's just a, uh, a guide to where you can find them all over the country. And so we'll get into that coming up a little bit later on. And maybe you have a haunted bridge story that you want to share at 508-996-0500 or 877-996-1420. Those are the numbers to call in and share whatever is on your mind, paranormally speaking, throughout the program. And it's like the weekly update now of Amityville because we've been talking about it every week now for the last few weeks. But earlier tonight, or earlier today, uh, Chris Quarantino, Chris Lutz, as he's formerly known as and I guess currently known as on Twitter, he started a Twitter account this week and he's been going directly after uh, Harvey Weinstein and, and Jason Blum and those who were behind the new Amityville movie. So he's not holding back. And we asked him if he wanted to join us tonight, and he declined. Uh, we've been talking back and forth, him and I, for a couple of weeks now. So he's kind of told me everything that's going on, but he's only put out so much publicly, so I can't say a lot of it. But uh, he does have more planned in this campaign to basically take back the Amityville story. So, but we still don't know who bought the house. I don't even know much about the story to begin with, so... That's because you won't watch the movies. I know. But why would I watch What about the books? I would tell you to read the book, but the book is terrible. Okay. And the book is not good. I thought it was good when I was younger, and I read it, but then I went back and reread it, and I was like, this is not even a well-written book. I think I'd rather hear it from the source than watch a movie, to be honest. Well, that's also, you know, questionable too, though, because of course the sources have been different. Like with it, right within the own, their own family, there's been different differentiations in the story. Right. So really, I mean, I'm trying to think of like what's a good way to uh, to learn about the story without having to watch them. I mean, you have to watch the movies only to know what has become the Hollywood version of the story, and that version has changed again and again in the different incarnations of the movies. And so many of the movies actually have nothing to do with the story. They're just horror movies that they slap the Amityville name onto. Right. Or, you know, place them into the to the house to, to kind of up the creep factor of the story. But you have to know... It, th- there's so many layers to it. There's what happened with the actual DeFeo murders. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. Then there is what happened to the Lutzes when they moved in. Right. And out of that, you have to branch that off into what does Chris say? What does Danny say? What did George say? Mm-hmm. Uh, what did Jay Anson write in the book? Uh, what did other people associated with the Lusses come out and say? Uh, Laura DiDio, uh, who we had on the show, what did she report in the newspaper? Uh, what did Ed and Lorraine Warren have to say about their involvement in the case? So there's all these, and, and none of it really... Matches. Yeah, none of it comes together. When the only thing that kind of comes up again and again are those who, you know, say that it was all a hoax because, you know, DeFeo's lawyer and, and the Lutzes sat down and concocted this whole story up over a couple of bottles of wine. Wow. That has seemed to kind of stay out there, but there's just so many different twists and changes in everybody's story. I don't really know what to believe myself. And then you have the re entrance of Ronnie DeFeo into the story a few years ago when he got involved with Jackie Barrett and they worked on a book together and now he's back into the story. And 
it's it's so hard because if you're going to try and put it all together, take all these pieces and put them all together and try to make sense of it all together, your head will explode. Right. I can see that. Because it's just there's too much of it that just how can one person be in the house and experience this and one person be in the house and experience that? Usually with a, a haunted house case, at least the family all has their story right. the same. And you can say if you want, if it was, if it really happened, if it was made up. I understand Chris was younger than Danny, and so he might not have experienced things the same way. But still, no matter how you look at it, you have to agree. What hoax or not, people that claim that their house is haunted generally have the same story. Right. So the fact that there are so many differentiations in the story, it actually makes me think that there probably was things going on. More than more than if they were all on the same page, if you get what I'm saying. It's almost like I would think it was more of a concocted story if everybody was telling the same story. I mean, coming from my uh, experiences, I guess, you can have one family member experience stuff and nobody else. So that is a possibility. Um, you know, even looking at families that contact me and say, my child's talking to something or something's bothering my child, but I don't see it. I don't hear it. I don't understand it. So that's really common. Um, so, I mean, it, in other people, you know, people moving in and out of a house, like I talked about before, different psychic energies from li- the living, um, especially wake up different energies that are remaining in the house. So like my parents didn't see any ghostly activity really until I was born. But this is... Again, you know, I'm not faulting you, but you're not totally familiar with all the parts of the story. Right. And so when you're talking about everybody being in the room and something happening, mm-hmm. you know, you would think that that's I'm only something... going off of what you just oh, said. Oh, I know, I know. So. But, uh, and, and I almost feel like I want to, like, break this all down and give you a primer for everything that everybody says. And I could probably do that off the top of my head mm-hmm. because I'm just that obsessed with it. But it still, it doesn't make any sense that... The family can all experience one thing together, and everybody has different versions of it in terms of like what did happen and what didn't happen. It's, a, it's almost like the critics have said they've picked and chosen what parts of the legend that they actually want to incorporate into their own version of the story, mm-hmm. if you get what I'm saying. So it's it's almost like uh, what was the, there was one thing that I know that uh, the the person who made the film with Danny Lutz, My Amityville Horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm blanking on his name. We had him on the show. Eric Eric Walter. And when he was on, you know, he even said to us that there were parts of Danny's discussion where Dan, he could kind of tell that it wasn't really Danny recollecting what had happened to him. It was Danny recollecting what was in the movie. Okay. So he was like, it was almost like his memories had merged with the fictionalized version Which can of it. happen. And yeah, and he yeah. didn't know what to believe and what not to believe. And that's kind of the issue with it is that, you know, these kids were young. Of course. So they don't really have full recollection of what was going on. But even hearing like certain parts of it or people that were involved in it, different things like that, makes me question as to whether or not there is any authenticity to really I think back up the story. I think something happened. Okay. And I think something happened that had a lasting impact because, I mean, I've become friends, friendly with Chris, right. so I don't want to, like, say, but, like, I'm not trying to say this in a mean way, but it messed them up. Mm-hmm. It messed up the whole family. Whatever went on there messed up the whole family. Right. And it goes beyond just, 
having the spotlight thrust on them messed up the family. Because you can look at it and say, well, that's why they're all messed well, up. That will is because, add to it. Absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, they became this national sensation. Mm-hmm. But I think whatever is there, it, it had way more of a lasting impact on them because it's it's affected who they are as people today. Well, obviously, to see how upset that Chris gets over the entire thing shows that there is something there. Because if nothing happened, and say if it was you know, them looking for fame. If nothing happened as a result of them putting it out there and then nothing continued to happen, you wouldn't continue to fight because there would be nothing to fight over. If it was a made-up story, it all would have been lost and then it wouldn't be point... Like, there'd be no point into it anymore. So if something happened and he's getting this fired up over, you know, somebody portraying something the wrong way or, you know, somebody retelling the story, then obviously he's trying to defend something. But the other side of that, too, the other side of the argument is that... You know, he came on with us years ago, mm-hmm. and then he started saying, you know, just it's only a matter of time before I... And, you know, he's tweeting Jason Blum and, and Harvey Weinstein and saying, you know, you guys think you know horror. You don't know real horror until I tell you about real horror, but mm-hmm. it's been years and you haven't told anybody anything. Okay. You know, it's been years. You haven't put out your own movie. You haven't put out your own book. Uh, at one point, it was going to be a pay-per-view video special. You know, there was all these different ways that he was going to get the story out there, and he hasn't. And I think the longer that he takes to do that, the more people are going to question right. his motives and what's behind it. And and that would be my question to him if he was on with us tonight is, you know, at what point are you going to share this? Because it has to get shared. Right. And if you're waiting for Hollywood to come calling and to, to sign up on, you know, putting your story on the film, if you're waiting for a documentary, if you're waiting for somebody to come forward and say, you know, we'll give you a book deal, whatever it is, you have to do something because you can't keep challenging other people's version of the story and not provide your own. It's like if, you know, if you sit here and we're get, you know, we're in a discussion right now right. and every time I said something you pulled a Donald Trump on me and just said wrong, 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 mm-hmm. but you have to tell me why I'm wrong. Of course, I understand that. And and that's what's lacking from this is that side of it is why is it wrong? It, is it wrong that they're capitalizing on his story? I think so. I mean, I think in some degrees the way some degree the way that this has gone where George and Kathy signed away the rights to the story, mm-hmm. and in effect, that took away the right of the kids to be able to tell their own story. And these rights have kept going in perpetuity from one studio to the other. Somebody bought the rights. Somebody else bought the rights. So you get to the point now where they're never actually going to have the right to tell their own story. But if you break it down legally, there are avenues that you can have to discuss it where certain aspects of it are copyrighted and certain aspects of it aren't because... They were real events, and it was your life, and you have some say in that. But it's so convoluted as to what is under whose control. So where's the ending point? Because how much can you keep telling and retelling and telling and retelling the exact same story? How much more are people going to keep feeding into it? They, they still do. They buy every book. They watch every movie. Because the fact that in 1975... It's based on a I'm true gonna story. I'm going to get going now, I know. But, but that's what it is. Like mm. The fact that you know it's based on a true story is enough to create in the public's mind, like, we want to know more about this. We mm-hmm. can't get enough of this. And it's not just a matter of like those who are obsessed with the story and those who are interested in the case. It becomes kind of like a a de facto thing for horror where... If you like horror movies and you see the image, it's a, it's a brand. It's a name. Right. And you say, all right, I'll, same reason why they keep remaking, you know, old horror movies mm-hmm. and bringing them to updated versions that you look at them and you say, well, that's not really all that much different. 
but they'll still watch it and there'll still be an audience for it and it'll still make money because people are kind of loyal to those brands. And it's something that you see in horror that you don't really see in a lot of other things. And I think, you know, outside of Police Academy, you really can't get away with making 14 movies with the same characters mm. and have it still work. Like, I don't understand the point of remaking and making and making and making Paranormal Activity. But I people think there's, keep no, there's been, that. what, five or six of those? I think six. And uh, and But people keep going. Because it becomes a moneymaker, and then it becomes an annual thing. Right. So it's like, let's put out a new one every year. And they did it with Saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just become. and now they're doing it with The Rocky. Conjuring. But at least, but, with, at least with Rocky, there was... Rocky's totally different. <laughs> but it's still the idea of franchising something and yeah, but milking that's, it to death. That's like a feel-good story. That's motivational for people. And also, they didn't really There's rehash the story. Right. I mean, sure, it's like Rocky goes up against the opponent, but they at least found different angles with the story. Right. Some of these horror movies, they don't even bother to try that right. hard, you know? Uh, yeah, so you're Friday the 13th type of thing, but yeah. And well, and and look at but look it's at your franchise. Look at what happened with like Nightmare on Elm Street, though, where it went on so long that Freddy stopped being scary and he started being the hero. You know, yeah, dark it, hero. And, and the same thing kind of happened with Jason too, where he becomes a hero. And I don't think that's something that would ever happen, you know, with with Amityville. I think you know it's always nice people versus the evil forces in the house. So because that dynamic can keep going. People will keep watching the films. People will keep seeing them. And when I say successful movie, I'm not talking about, like, number one blockbuster, you know, like, whatever that new Disney movie is being, like, the, you know, the smash hit. I mean, just, like, they made back more money than it spent to make it. And they make it very low budget. They make it cheap. Instead of going to Tom's River, New Jersey and renting the house that they used for the original filming, they built a replica in a public park. And that's where they filmed this movie, which is why Chris Lutz was able to get out there and film some footage at the site himself. So it's like the production values have kind of gone down again and again. And so like now if it costs you $80 million to put out the movie and it makes $120 million in DVD sales or on-demand rentals, then, hey, you know, it's a huge hit for them. Let's make another one. And, and sometimes it even comes out, let's crank out as many as we can until we lose the rights. So, and I think that's what Chris is worried about. He's worried about this becoming a new franchise, this becoming the kicking off of the franchise once again, and then the story is going to go so far beyond what it is that you know they're trying to say happened to them. It's like imagine if somebody told you, uh, you know, you've had this experience in your life, in, yeah. and now it's been pulled apart and, and bastardized so much and heaped upon and turned into something else that nobody believes you anymore when you try to tell them your version of what happened. Because it differs from what the uh, fictional record shows, basically. And if you want to tell your own story, then if you tell your own story and it changes again and again and it turns into something way different than what you originally told, that's on you. But if it was in somebody else's hands and they did it, you know, it's, it's, it can have a, a pretty strong effect on you, I would think. Yeah, like what happened to uh, my friend Travis Walton, the movie mm-hmm. Fire in the Sky. You know, everything that that movie portrays of what happened to the crew that got left behind is 100% accurate. Or, I wouldn't say 100%, but, you know, subtle little things. But what happened to them in the movie is what happened. What happened to Travis, on the other hand, is complete Hollywood. And... 
Yeah, it it affected him actually. And, well, and you can see, you know, with with that case and the way that you know Travis goes around now, oh, yeah. and and speaks and shares his story. So he's out there trying to change people's minds, and and he also wants to come on the show, which we will certainly have him on. But uh, he's you know he's out there actively speaking on this because he needs to alter that perception of what happened, and he needs to to share the real experience because other people are having the real experience. People aren't having experiences like they see in the movies, which I think is is where people get lost get lost and, and confused in this. People who haven't had the experiences, they watch the movies, they see the Hollywood version of what happened, and they think that that's how it goes down. So that they don't ex- they don't accept it unless it becomes that. You know, so uh, if you... You know, if you watch Fire in the Sky, you expect that that's exactly how right. it's going to happen if these forces show up in your life. And the same with a haunting, you know. It, well, I, you know, my kid isn't seeing a demonic pig walk through the room. No priest came in covered in flies, and the house never told me to get out. So I don't think it's really paranormal activity we're dealing with here. <laughs> like, that's you, you can't use the fictionalized uh, version of the Amityville Horror as the yardstick for whether or not your house is haunted. No, I guess you. And I think you have to expect, like watching any type of movie, that it's doctored up for Hollywood, no matter what. Yeah, I wish people could believe that. I wish that could be enough for people. And, and even when it's like based on a true story, or or supposedly like a biopic or something like that, mm-hmm. people still don't understand the fact that people in someone's life are combined into one character. Right. Certain events are dramatized or fictionalized, and it's just there's. There's no way to get people to accept that. They just see what happens, and they're like, well, they made a movie about it. It has to be like that. That's how it had to go down. I mean, I just I just watched a movie this week on Hank Williams, which is not really all that great of a movie. But, you know, Hank Williams is a pretty interesting character, pretty interesting yeah. life, but, uh, you know, I don't know. Just the movie didn't seem right. But there's a lot of stuff in that movie that didn't happen exactly like it did. They kind of rushed the story along to get everything to fit within the narrative. But now that's going to become the way that Hank Williams' life was for everybody that sees that movie. That didn't know Hank Williams' story before the movie was made. Right. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, unfortunately how mankind and human beings are. We, We just tend to take what people feed us more often than not. Unless you have a brain. Well, some of us do. Well, getting back into, uh, say, Chris Lusses, um, his view on or his take on what he experienced, that that's his experience. His psyche is the one that, you know, interpreted what he experienced. You and I have been in locations and we've had paranormal activity happen with, you know, plenty of people in the room and we all experienced something different. But we all agreed something interesting happened. I'll give you a good example. Lizzie Borden's. We were up and uh, we all heard a noise. We all differed on what noise we heard, but we all we all reacted to the same thing at the same time. And um, and I think that that's probably the differentiate the differentiation is what makes it stand out for me because if I said I heard what sounded like you know, uh, just a random noise. You know, like, let's just say, if I say I heard car keys jingling, 
And somebody else might be like, yeah, yeah, that hurt. That, that's what I heard, too. It sounded like car keys jingling. And you know, we take that suggestion. That's the same reason why you don't want to play somebody an EVP and say, here's what I think they're saying before they've actually heard it. Because yeah. you don't want to put that suggestion in people's heads. But when, So when four people hear a noise, we all hear it. But you think it's one thing. You think it's another thing. You think it's another thing. I think it's another thing. That, to me, means more yeah. than if we all agree right away. But that would explain what I was trying to say about Chris Lust's experience. He remembers this. Why can't Danny remember that? And you know what I'm saying? Even though it's very different in terms of experiences, but yeah, that we all go through it in you know, our own views. So, Matt, I just I thought that I just uh, directly sent you a message uh, asking if you could get our guest on the phone. And apparently I, <laughs> I sent it in a message just to Chris. So I apologize. I'm like, why are you still sitting there, Matt? What's wrong with Matt? <laughs> Can you knock it up? Why are you still sitting there? Uh, did 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 you? I just sent it to you now, so you should have it. Thank you. See, this is this is why you should never trust me to be in charge of things. Uh, so Matt is going to get our guest, Rich Newman, on the phone with us. We'll talk about haunted bridges. If you want to go to his website, you can go to paranormalincorporated.com if you want to find out more about Rich. Uh, and about all the different things that his organization, Paranormal Incorporated, does. They're based in Missouri as well as Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, they have some pretty interesting stuff. They have a podcast. They have a web series. Uh, and we'll be talking with Rich about his new book, Haunted Bridges, as well as some of his other books as well. So I apologize for that. I've been We've been sitting here waiting, uh, you know, to to get Rich on the phone. And I'm like, why We were it? supposed to call him. Like, yeah, I'm like, what's Matt doing? Can he not get up? Did he not see my message? No, it's, he didn't. I see the little check mark, so we saw it, but it wasn't to him. It was to Chris. What are we going to do with you? Well, you know, Chris could have also said, uh, you Very know you true. sent that just to me, you know. Very true, Chris. Very I think true. he just I think he just wanted to wait and see what would happen. I think he wanted to wait and see if I would fall on my face. And he was right. I did. Well, that'd be terrible. Yeah, well... And uh, so, uh, again, if you want to, speaking of Lizzie Borden's, uh, we did put a new event on sale March 4th, Lizzie's March to Murder. Uh, it will be happening March 4th, and there's, I think, nine tickets left. So just go to SpookySouthCoast.com, and you can find the little event link there on the calendar, and you can purchase one of those remaining tickets. Uh, you know, we had some folks that have been asking us when we are going to go back to Lizzie Borden's, and so I just reached out to Leanne, and we found some dates that work, so... We figured let's do it. Keep in mind, this is a small event for 25 people only. And like I said, only nine tickets are left. So if you want to get those, get them pretty quickly. Usually they sell out within 24 hours, you know, 48 hours. I think the holidays have kind of, you know, stretched people out a little bit. So if you're looking for a Christmas gift, uh, a gift you want to give to somebody, Certainly, this would be a pretty interesting gift, I would think. Are you booking rooms too, or there will be rooms offered? Uh, they will once the tickets sell out. That's when I start going back through the list and I offer the room deals. And you will get an email telling you that you can sign up for a room, as well as you can sign up for a, a reading with Stephanie during the course yes, of the you event. Can. And uh, we've actually already had one person set one up already, right? Yes, we'll, and so. I think another one asked me too. I told him to message you but so we'll get it all we'll get that all squared away but the rooms the tickets are 135 dollars each and then once you purchase your ticket you'll have the chance to buy a room in order of the people who purchase the tickets that's the fairest way to do it is to go in order and uh, you'll have the chance to stay for a hundred dollars per person which if there's two of you in the room you're getting the room for you know a third of what you would normally pay so it's not a bad deal or at least more like half but still it's a great deal you get a nice bed, 
first rate accommodations. In a haunted, haunted place. And nobody really sleeps when we leave. They all kick around the house and they keep investigating for the rest of the night. So that's the. I would not sleep the really in that fun house. Part. I wouldn't sleep just because I'd be like, I have four more hours. I can investigate. I'm doing it. I don't even know if I want to stay all night. We stay pretty late. We we also know that the we wear out our we wear out our welcome as it is. You and I do. So yes, tickets are available on SpookySouthCoast.com if you want to get them. Uh, again, and if you want to give them as a gift, you know we don't send out physical tickets because we don't have ticket insurance and all that kind of stuff, and it's we we can't really protect against fraud and all that kind of stuff. So what we do is we just put you on a list. So there won't actually be a physical ticket that you could give somebody as a gift. However. If you wanted to do so, if you wanted to give it as a gift, we can come up with something uh, that you could put into a card or into a package or something. And we'll also, we could make you a video as well, which yeah, we've done go. in the past for people when they've given given cool. them as a gift. We've made them videos telling them they're going, so we could do that as well. Just uh, send me an email if that's what you need to do. All right, well, why don't we get into the discussion tonight with our guest. Rich Newman has been investigating the paranormal for over 10 years, and he's the founder of the group Paranormal Incorporated. His articles have appeared in Haunted Times and Paranormal Underground. Uh, he's the author of a, a number of books, but tonight we'll be talking to him mostly about his new book, Haunted Bridges, and he joins us on the line right now. Good evening, Rich. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. How are you? Good. How are you guys? Oh, we are spooktacular, as we say here. And... Uh, I have to say, out of all the the different haunted locations that are out there, you know, we told, I mentioned some at the start of the show: hospitals, asylums, schools, houses, all this stuff. I don't think any of them have kind of the the same romanticism that a, a bridge has. Bridges are something that always seem to have a, a pretty uh, strong metaphorical place in people's lives. Um, that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, you can look at even mythology, you know, a lot of different folklore and things where a bridge sort of connects the living to the dead. Um, in Norse mythology, you have different bridges connecting the different worlds and things like that. And for sure, there's a romantic notion about it, especially since they've been around for such a long time. And it's almost like it's allegorical, you know. Uh, it's like you're crossing from one side to the other. Uh, but it's it's also uh, something that makes a connection. And a lot of hauntings, when you look at them, that's really what they are. They're just a connection from our world to, to another plane of existence. Absolutely. I mean, we all have uh, probably some different views about the nature of a ghost or even the nature of a spirit or the afterlife, but we sort of carry that common thread that, even if we maybe don't uh, agree with our, our neighbor on exactly the nature of that thing, we all sort of kind of hope we, that there are such a thing. <laughs> I'm sure we would uh, appreciate that versus oblivion. And, and I think that that's probably, you know, what we're hoping. I mean, a lot of this is, is our own ego, and it is our own desire to kind of continue on. But I also feel, and, and maybe you agree with this, maybe you disagree, that a lot of this is just our own Need, like as much as we've learned about the universe and as much as we think that we've figured things out, this also kind of represents that one area where it still is uncharted territory. There is still more that we can explore and, and try to find out. It's kind of the last great unknown. Absolutely. You know, and I, I believe there's a, a lot that we don't know, actually. You know, we talk about ghosts, but, you know, we still really don't know what a lot of the more credible UFO reports are. We still don't know. You know, a lot of the more credible cryptid reports, things like that. I, I think there's a lot that we don't know, and I'm cool with that. 
Well, I mean, also, too, the, the best part about that is, is if we don't know it, then there's still that thrill of discovery, and there's still that thrill of being able to, to make the connections. And obviously, you know, you've been putting together this book for a while, the, and you've written other books as well, but I'm assuming that most of your work is done with your team, with Paranormal Incorporated. The actual investigations are. Um, the writing is more just in my ballpark. Um, but I do, I reach out to a lot of different paranormal investigators across the country. Um, if for no other reason than just, you know, because I can't travel to every single place that I write about, I like to at least get some uh, hands-on knowledge from people who've been there to sort of verify some facts for me and things like that. So I work with a lot of different paranormal groups, but my personal group is mainly the investigations you see on the website. Uh, we get invited a lot to go do things like that and events and that sort of thing. But I do most of the writing. <laughs> but, I mean, so you have a, a collection of minds that you investigate with and that you can take different approaches into into account. And, you you know, it's it's kind of like one of those things where, uh, sometimes the, the, some of the parts are greater than, than each person individually, and that gets you closer to finding some of the answers that you're looking for. No, absolutely. And I mean, and that's just, you know, ghost hunting 101. You, you want to have reliable people with you, if for no other reason than just to corroborate what, what happens. I mean, that's one thing to have someone give you a, an eyewitness account and you kind of scratch your head and say, okay. But it's a, it's a big different thing, you know, when three, four, or five people, you know, see that happen. Um, so it's always great to have people you trust with you um, and also, you know, take it a, a little bit seriously and aren't going to use it as an opportunity to just thrill-seek. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's great to work with people like that. And when you started writing and you started uh, putting out, which which book came out first? Um, the first, I actually wrote a book about applying uh, video uh, filmmaking techniques to video games um, first. Um, the first actual ghost hunting book I did was called The Ghost Hunter's Field Guide, which is basically a giant travel book, um, state by state of haunted places that are all accessible to everyone. Um, and that came out about five years ago. So at least in terms of, and for those watching on Spooky TV, you see me waving. I was just waving to the police officer that drove by. Because we're always, <laughs> we're always very respectful to the police who never question why we're here at two o'clock in the morning standing out in the parking lot. But, uh, the, <laughs> but when looking at that too, like, that's also a pretty daunting task to take on. Uh, being an investigator, you know, you know how hard it is to start collecting some of the research behind these places. And so right out of the gate, you're coming out with a book where you're kind of collecting this information from all over. And my question is, is it easier to write something like that where you're kind of just collecting things from everywhere, or is it harder or easier to focus on a narrow topic like just bridges? Oh, it's definitely easier to focus on a narrow topic. Um, the first book really, <clears throat> well, it was not easy to write. It took me a couple of years. Mm -hmm. But it really came out of the frustration that, Myself and my, my compatriots and apparently, but also other paranormal investigators that I know, the frustration of not knowing what would be accessible to us to actually investigate. And so, you know, I would buy, you know, some of, there weren't a lot of shit books on the shelves that were like location, go to this state, go to this place. But when I did find one, what I would discover a lot of the times was, um, it would end up being private property or, it would be out of date and, you know, the place would have already burned down or something or it would have changed hands a couple of times and it wasn't a restaurant anymore. 
So really, we just got frustrated with trying to find places to investigate. And so I kind of wanted to write a book where someone who was interested in ghost hunting could open it and every single place in it, they could go there. They could go to that restaurant. They could go to that haunted hotel. They could go to that haunted national park, whatever. And and I think that's what appeals to a lot of people because a lot of people aren't serious enough to get involved with a group and to, to go out and get equipment and to keep track of all of their findings. I mean, a lot of people just kind of want to go out and have the thrill of the chill. And that's what's great about about books like The Ghost Hunter's Field Guide and, and Haunted Bridges is you have the chance to go out and just kind of experience. It's how I got started, really, because I did the same thing. I found a book of, like, a list of haunted places, and my sister-in-law and I were like, hey, one of these places is right down the street. Let's go check it out. And that's what it takes for some people to, to get hit with the bug. But also, when focusing on places like that, you know, you also have a responsibility of it's different if you're taking these out of your own case files and you're sharing your own experiences and your own things that have happened with you. When you're talking about these places, uh, they kind of have that, it's something greater than you where you're just kind of a steward for the story. Uh, is that what happened with the new book too and in bringing a lot of these bridge stories to the public attention? Because I'm assuming, you know, the Ghost Hunters Field book, uh, the Ghost Hunters Field Guide, you have a lot of stories that people might have been familiar with. The bridge stories tend to be something that really exists in folklore and tradition and and really only the locals kind of know them type of thing that's true um well i mean one of the big appeals to me about gus hunting period is that hand in hand with the spiritual stuff that we're talking about and even the thrill stuff because i mean we all get you know even the serious investigators we get a thrill out of seeing something or hearing something or have something happen um but hand in hand with that is also an interest in history and so my, I think that part of the things that I try to do when I write the book is also to reveal some of that history because the best ghost stories have a great history behind them. I mean, it's one thing to point, at, you know, at this bridge across the way and say, "Hey, you know, somebody told me there's a, you know, a ghost of a person that was hung hanging on that bridge." But then if I walk over and I say, "Yeah, that bridge over there, Sacks Covered Bridge, it was in the Battle of Gettysburg. Three Confederate spies were hung there, and so there's." There's some history behind that story. Well, that that ghost story takes on a whole new level of weight, and that's what I really love in good ghost stories. Is I like the the history and the romance of a good spooky story, but I really dig that history, and I really I, I try to bring that to the book. Oh, and that's what I love about these about go, uh, uh, bridge stories in particular is that they seem to always have one of those type of, of historical events tied to them. You know, it's it's not something that you have to go into with the outlook of, well, people say, and then have it just be that. You know, there always seems to be some sort of, you know, an accident that happened, a tragedy that happened associated with it, some sort of legitimate backstory that makes you think that the supernatural side of it is entirely plausible. Oh, for sure. And I mean, and even things as simple as, you take a bridge like Brooklyn Bridge or the Golden Gate Bridge, where there's documented, you know, hundreds of suicides. You know, these are all factual events that happen a lot of times around these bridges. And you mentioned, you know, car accidents, auto accidents, pedestrians being hit. And even some of the more bizarre stories, you know, end up having a little bit of weight to them. You know, when, when people talk about, you know, like the chapter, for instance, about invisible hands, you know, there's a ritual with that sort of a bridge where you park your car, put it neutral, you know, and turn it off, whatnot. And then, you know, some ghosts push your car. 
well, some of those bridges did have some tragedies happen on there, and you know, with children being killed and things like that. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of this history is, is a very tragic history, but it's all there, and I definitely think it adds some weight to these ghost stories. So, when you started putting all these together, and, and you're uh, putting, you know, and you mentioned in the introduction too that instead of breaking this down geographically, you wanted to kind of put it by categories and by themes. And it seems like there are a lot of themes that run through these stories. It seems like you know you can really categorize a lot of these bridge tales. That's true. And actually, this book was actually pitched to me by my publisher. Um, I had just uh, finished a different book, um, The Devil in the Delta. And she pitched me on the idea of doing a haunted bridge book. And at first, I was kind of reticent to do it because of exactly what you're saying. You know, how many places, you know, in this country have we heard about a crybaby bridge? Well, there's there's one in every state. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> at least one. So, I mean, I thought, you know, I told her, I said, well, I don't know if I can make the stories varied enough because a lot of the urban legends, especially that revolve around bridges, tend to run the same story. So um, as I researched it more and then started figuring out, oh, no, there's a lot more different things happening on these bridges than just, you know, crybaby bridges and invisible hand, you know, pushing cars. Um, It just made better sense to kind of divide it up by genre or by category. Um, That way I could, if the stories did sort of kind of start to sound the same, I could point it out myself versus the reader saying, wow, I'm reading a lot of the uh, same stories over and over again here. But now, as an author, and, and as somebody who is putting together these stories in in a book, you don't want to have a lot of similarities in the stories. You know, you, you kind of want to have differentiations in the legend and in the interaction that people have with the legend. But as a paranormal researcher, you must look at this and say, it fascinates you to look and see that there are these same stories happening in, in place to place to place and you have to start to wonder well why why do these stories seem to be repeatable and, and, and seem to be existing around these entirely different locations well I mean I don't really I don't kid myself there are a certain degree of these that are urban legend mm-hmm. and a good story and a good urban legend does get around but that said the majority of the bridges in the book kind of have their own unique spin um, and I think part of the reason why these sound a lot alike is because our human tendency to make sense of something. Um, you know, we go out at night, we cross a bridge, we hear the sound of a baby crying. Well, that's, you know, scary and terrifying, and uh, we want to understand why we're hearing this. So it's sort of, you know, I don't want to say it's human nature to lie, but it is sort of human nature to sort of want to come up with a story behind it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you may start poking around and say, oh, well, you know, old so-and-so down the road, you know, she had a baby that died when it was young. That must be it. You know, so we just, I think a lot of it just comes from our need to understand what's happening. I don't think a lot of the stories are actually just flat made up. You know, no one's sitting around going, hmm, this will get, get people and scare them really good. See, you know, they are springing out of some sort of reality. But, but I got to think there must be just a lot of them too that do kind of just come up as as a legend, as a way to, uh, you know, and not not so much entertain people, but just to kind of give these locations a character and to give them a story. That there must be some of that to some degree to say, 
you know, maybe you heard the story about a crybaby bridge somewhere else and you applied it to this bridge in telling other people the tale because it had more impact. So you're telling a story that you heard that happened somewhere else, but just to give it a little bit more emphasis when telling the story to somebody else, you're like, oh, yeah, and that's that bridge right over there. You know, you, you know what I mean? Like, so some of these kind of might have been identified as such just basically because they wanted to uh, actually embellish the story a little bit to go back to what you were saying. Well, sure, and, and also, um, to add to that, a lot of times it's sort of a cautionary tale. Um, a good example would be, you know, there's a, a chapter called The Dead Hitchhiker, and one of the more, you know, common stories is that, you know, you come across the bridge, you see someone walking, you stop, you offer them a ride, they get in the car, they're not speaking, and then when you cross the bridge and get to the other side, you look over and they're gone. Well, a lot of those kind of stories, you know, kind of spring out of the need for parents to say, you know, don't hitchhike, you know, don't trust strangers. You get in with, you know, it's a whole stranger danger thing. You know, you get in a car, something bad will happen. You know, look, this poor girl, she's haunting this road over here. You know, and people may or may not see a spirit on that road. And that spirit may or may not have been a hitchhiker. But that story, you know, does some good in that it's sort of serving as a cautionary tale. And it's also serving as a little bit of an explanation for this mysterious ghost that people are seeing on this bridge. See, we don't know anything about phantom hitchhikers in this area. <laughs> we actually have one of the most famous around uh, here in our neck of the woods. Uh, but I, we'll get into that coming up in the next hour because I want to talk to you a little bit more about that and about some of these, uh, I, I guess you would almost call them, uh, you know, archetypes of some of these legends that are out there. And, and a lot of them apply to these bridge stories. So we'll get into some of those coming up in the next hour after we take a break for the network news. Uh, but meanwhile, let everybody know where they can find out about you during the news break if they want to research a little bit more about both your writing and about your group as well. Um, they can go to the website, um, Paranormal Incorporated, all spelled out, dot com, and they can look at some case files as well as stuff about the books and all kinds of neat stuff. I noticed too, you have a you have a web series on there as well. Yes, actually, I, I shot a student film documentary about haunted Civil War sites, and uh, after it did its little TV run, we split it up into little segments and just put it for free on Vimeo. Nice. Well, uh, we, I'm sure we can talk about that coming up in the next hour as well. If anybody has any questions for our guest, Rich Newman, you can call in as well, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. You can also jump in the chat room on SpookySouthCoast.com or actually on our YouTube channel as well. It's up in both spots. And there are some questions that have been rolling in in the chat room, so we'll get to those coming up in the next hour as well. Uh, including we'll talk about the nature of ghosts and, and how they relate to bridges and, and water and all of that as well. We'll get into that coming up in the next hour. If you also want to submit questions via Twitter, you can join in the discussion using the hashtag SpookyLive, which we use during the show, or you can tweet us directly at SpookySC. We'll keep, uh, we'll keep the conversation going all night long through the social media in addition, you know, we, we, we have the show. The show is on. The show happens from 10 to midnight every Saturday night, but it doesn't stop there. You know, we know that we have a, a great following all across social media, and we have a, a great following on YouTube. Matt does a fantastic job of taking the show, breaking it into little tiny little bits, and putting it up there as spooky clips. And, uh, and Matt, I noticed you had spooky clips coming out pretty much all week this week. Yeah, we had a few this week. Um, and uh, uh, Ball's on a show. Um Tripping on Legends is also going to be a weekly thing. Yeah. Which is nice. 
Yeah, so, yeah, episode two already out if people want to check that out as well. So, so many ways to stay entertained throughout the course of the week. It's your paranormal fix every day. Just go to SpookySouthCoast.com. There's always something going on. Following us on social media, at SpookySC on Twitter, uh, Spooky underscore South Coast on Instagram. It's all up there, and we all have it up there. And and, uh, and Stephanie does a great job after the clips telling you where you have to go. I just saw my first one, I think, like <laughs> yesterday or this morning. Every time I look, it's you. I was like, oh, good, I'm off the hook. But <laughs> no, no. No. Nope, it's both of us. I look very concerned while I say it. We we'll should do a redo. We would have Moniz doing, but it'll just come out creepy. I agree. Which, you know, usually works. But uh, So we're going to take a break for the news. When we come back on the other side, we will talk more with our guest, Rich Newman. Again, send your questions uh, via email, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com, via Twitter using the hashtag SpookyLive, or in the chat room at SpookySouthCoast.com, and also on our YouTube channel as well. Uh, we'll be back with more Spooky South Coast in just a few. Along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, and Stephanie Burks, science advisor Matt Boniz has stepped out, running a quick errand, uh, but he shall return with food that you're probably going to try and eat during the show. Yes, I am. I'm blowing up your spot. You are. I already asked to not be on when I was eating, but you did that to me. I'm going to pull your microphone down when you start eating until you tell me that you're done. Cool. So, even though, Matt, what do they teach you in broadcasting school, like, day one? What don't you do on the air? Uh, eat a chicken sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> he asks him as he sees him taking a bite of food. Right, and uh, he's off camera. So, but we do we do have food in this. It's it's not polite to eat on the air, but we do have food in the studio tonight. And just don't tell the engineer. Right, don't tell him that we have drinks on the counter and. Well, the board is safe. Not necessarily, because I am tearing up these cookies here. We do have cookies here. That uh, can we show them? I'm I'm going to put them on my camera here. That's a good shot. And uh, these were sent to us by, by Cheryl. I call her Mama Cheryl. She sent us these lovely cookies, and uh, we thank you very much because we've been chowing down yes. on them. And We love snacks. We do. We're big on snacks. We like snacks the paranormal yes. really runs on snacks. We need you, to get you, sponsorships you, of you the show. You can't even have an investigation without having some sort of snacks. It's true. Keep yourself going. And you know, mm. especially. Long, t- tends to be long nights. Especially when you're running an event. As poor Matt Costa knows, especially when I was pregnant, hmm. I uh, I couldn't carry my backpack, so I shoved all of my snacks into his backpack, and he had to follow me around all night. <laughs> I still want to know why the show is not brought to us by Seven Eleven. We do um, tend to stock up at Seven Eleven. Well, there's one near my house, so and there's one near the station, right. so that helps. It's kind of a convenience thing. It's almost like a store for being convenient. Like like some kind of a convenient store. It's it's almost like this should be a thing. Maybe, maybe you might might be onto something. I think I just just made Matt Costa choke on a chicken sandwich. You just blew my mind. (laughs) You almost blew chunks all over the studio with that with that uh, chicken sandwich. Something in the chicken sandwich. I do you think there's 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 something in it? 
I'm glad I didn't eat it. The bun's supposed to be yellow, right? So I think so. Like either. potato bread? So what? I it, think so. Hawaiian bread? Those are both like yellowy, right? What? It, so what exactly are you eating over there? He, he doesn't know. It's the bread, like the the bun is yellow. So, like, but... But what's in it? What kind of sandwich is it? Chicken sandwich. Cheese. Oh, cheese? Interesting. Hmm. So it's uh, so you're failing uh, miserably over there. Taking forever. Yeah. Taking forever, Carl. Good sandwich, Carl. I just wasn't happy with the version of it that I found. Oh. The only version I found of it is like super digitized, but they they took all of it down because I think um. Chicken sandwich, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Still, Robert Penn Grant's greatest contribution to the entire series of the state. Was. Oh, my goodness. I think it's on Hulu now, so they took everything off of YouTube. Wow. Remember that night we made Stephanie stay here and watch, like, every state sketch we could remember? Yep. Yeah. She and hated I was exhausted. it. Hated it. Yes. It awesome. And I hated it even more. I don't know if I hate that or if I hate the Trailer Park Boys more. What? The Trailer Park Boys have a new season out where they go no, to they Europe. Don't. Please tell me that's Yes, not they true. do. Trailer Park Boys out of the park. They go to They go to Europe. That so. night mm-hmm. was torturous. That night you made me stay and watch Bubbles, everyone. Bubbles is your hero. <laughs> All right, let's, let's get no. back on the discussion tonight with our guest because we're 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 making him wait on the line while we talk about nonsense. We apologize, Rich Newman, for having you sit through that, but uh, usually we fall down a rabbit hole and it's hard for us to scratch our way back up. Before we jump into the, the conversation, I have to give a huge shout out to Eduardo. Um, he's listening from Brazil right now. Oh well, hello, Eduardo. Thank you for listening from Brazil and for jumping in the chat room on YouTube and on SpookySouthCoast.com. And also, I want to say hi to Ross. Ross, thank you for everything this week. Uh, he's in the chat room oh, yeah. as well. So, uh, Ross is not to give away a lot of secrets here, but he's he's the one that's helping us make the uh, iPhone version of the app possible. Yes, so. him and I actually talked about that this week. So uh, we thank you very much for that, Ross, as well. So, All right, now let's get back into the discussion with our guest, Rich Newman. Again, if you want to check out his website during the discussion, it's paranormalincorporated.com. And I'll, I'll just ask you this, Rich. This is a semantical question. Is Paranormal Incorporated actually incorporated? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, in fact, I didn't even realize that other people were using that name until recently. Someone oh, really? contacted me and said, hey, sorry, we were calling ourselves Paranormal Incorporated and we saw you uh, had this going on, so no, nah, we're not incorporated at all. Oh, well, the question is: Does anybody ever wonder if you are kids incorporated, all grown up, and deciding to go into the paranormal? That's uh, no, but I was definitely into the paranormal when I was a kid, as well as my friends. Okay, but were you into Kids Incorporated? Because I think I've seen every episode. Are you not, I don't, fami- I not even, familiar? I don't recall that. I don't even recall that show. Oh man, it was terrible. <laughs> That's, it, it was pretty paranormal, just how it still drew an audience every week, being as bad as it was. It was basically a dance club for kids. And oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. Mario Lopez was on it as a dancer, not even as an actor, just as a dancer. So that tells you all you need to know. Anyway, bad TV aside, uh, we're getting back in the discussion uh, tonight. Rich is our guest. Uh, he has a new book out called Haunted Bridges, but he's written a, a, a number of books. And one of the ones that you mentioned, I just I want to ask you about this, and we can get into it deeper if you want, or, or we can kind of just uh, glance over it and people can pick up the book. But you mentioned earlier your book Devil in the Delta, A Ghost Hunter's Most Terrifying Case to Date. And I'm assuming that you know this must have been a pretty unique case for it to warrant an entire book. It was. This is also a book that sort of 
sprung out of a uh, couple of different issues that I've encountered while investigating paranormal over the years. One being that, <clears throat> well, as we talked about earlier, there, t- there tends to be people who are kind of thrill seekers, and then there tends to be people who are kind of serious investigators. They really want to sort of gather evidence, help people out who may be afraid of what's happening to them, that sort of thing. Um, and even look at the bigger questions, like you're talking about the afterlife and religion and things like that. But uh, this was a strange case, and it was terrifying not in the ways that people think when they see the book. It wasn't terrifying in, like, the ghostly activity. There was ghostly activity, but it was terrifying in that it really highlighted the dangers of working on private cases. Um, When someone confides in you and brings you into their home and then you start investigating what happens there, things can kind of go down paths that you never really thought they would, and that's sort of what the book is about. And when you're dealing – I mean, obviously this is something that we – kick amongst ourselves, a topic we kick around amongst ourselves a lot, but it does come up on the show, there is a whole different set of responsibilities in dealing with private cases and dealing with families and people who are calling you because they're in need and because they're in crisis as opposed to just, you know, cat- uh, cataloging paranormal history associated with sites. Absolutely. And I mean, this is, like, if you, the opening chapter, or not even the introduction to Bill and the Delta says, it's called the devil and Delta because of they did believe that they were having some demonic activity in their home um, based on their religion and whatnot. But it was also having to do with the devil and the details because there was so much happening with this family with drugs, illegal activity, um, bizarre just things they would do in this house. And there were children present. There were drugs present in the house with the children. There were just all these different things going on in this one haunted double wide trailer in the outback of Mississippi. So you can just imagine the different places this book goes. Well, and that's to me that's the 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 part that I I'm always careful about in my work as an investigator is that I don't really want to have to get involved into into something like that that can be it can easily take over your life if you're, you know, associated with one of these cases and helping somebody out and and following through with all this. You know, it becomes where you're kind of their their paranormal support person, and you never know when you're going to get the phone call. You never know when you're going to have to talk somebody down from the proverbial ledge. You know, it, it can just kind of eat you up inside and 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 can draw all of your attention and your time away. At least when. Working with something like researching haunted bridges, you know that you can you can turn the computer off for a while. You can go back to real life. Those stories, those legends, will always be there when you get back and when you sit down again. Absolutely, and I mean, I I think that the majority of the people that go into these private cases, you know, they have good intentions at heart. They want to help people out who are saying, you know, something's happening in their house and they're frightened, et cetera, et cetera. But you never really know the culture of that household that you're getting into. You don't know what their particular religious beliefs are. You don't know what their particular occult beliefs are. You don't know what's happened in that place prior to you getting there. And, you know, this was just a prime example of there was just a lot of things happening in this house in front of small children. I mean, there's no way that the small children in the house in Dillon the Delta grew up to, to not be af- afraid of anything to do with ghosts just because of the lunacy and the over-the-top way that this woman treated every little thing that happened in the house. 
the home there was haunted, but I mean, she had gone to this realm of paranoia where every little thing that happened was of great import. Um, just to give you a quick example, just I don't want to get into this too far, but she, there was a point when I was talking to her and she was telling me about noises she was hearing in the house. And then she came out of nowhere. Up to this point, we'd only discussed ghosts. And then all of a sudden she said, you know, it's the devil and he's watching you right now. Hmm. And I said, he's watching me right now. Where is he? And she said, he's right there on the wall behind you. And I turned around and there was a fly on the wall. And she was claiming that the fly was the devil. And at that moment, I thought, well, her five-year-old child was sitting over there listening to this whole conversation, scared out of her mind. What's going on in this house when I'm not sitting here asking questions? You know, what is she saying around these kids and doing the – it was crazy, just absolutely crazy. Yeah, I mean, that would make me certainly second-guess, you know, how much I wanted to put myself into that position. Uh but just one of the things that caught me from the from the summary of the book uh, on the website is a television that shoots fire, and uh, and, and I, I think I would I would actually like to have one of those. <laughs> if you could like yeah, make it shoot fire whenever you wanted, it could, it could come in handy. <laughs> right. Well, there was a, I actually took a picture uh, on the Paranormal Incorporated website. You can actually pull up in the sidebar where I list the investigation. Mm-hmm. I put a special. A little investigation link there for the Devil in the Delta, where a lot of the different things that I've talked about in the book, including EVPs and sound. Oh yeah, there's a ton of them there. Yeah, are all on the website. There's actually a picture of the TV. <laughs> there is. I'm I'm on the page right now. I'm trying to find it though. Oh okay. Well, man, I'm hopelessly behind on keeping that website up. It, I, I need to get on that. Well, I mean, it's a great, it's an easy, easy to navigate website. It's, it's pretty well laid out there. If anybody wants to check it out, paranormalincorporated.com. Uh, getting back into the, into the bridges, uh, you know, we talked, uh, just amongst ourselves, you know, before the show started, we were talking about how in New England, we have a lot of bridges that, especially covered bridges that seem to have these stories associated with them, whether it be these legends that have developed in other places as well, uh, but they seem to all have some sort of story attached to them. I don't think there's any bridge around here that doesn't have a story associated with it. In other areas and other regions of the country, um, you know, do you find that it's the same thing, that all these bridges seem to have a story, or does it get to the point where sometimes it's few and far between to, to find a ghost story from a certain area? Well, you definitely have it made in the, in the, the Northeast. You guys, for sure, have the, probably the highest percentage per state. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with just the great collection of covered bridges that are up there. Um, like when you talk about the bridges in New England, which I'm not a New Englander, so I don't even know what states are considered New England, but I always think about Emily's Bridge in Stowe, Vermont. Right. Is that considered New England? Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, okay. And... Yeah, I mean, it does seem like in the Midwest and as you go even farther west that we don't have the uh, density of stories concerning bridges and, and haunted bridges. But we also, you know, that these part of the countries aren't as old as New England is. So I think a lot of weight goes into the history that you guys have up there. Well, you mentioned Emily's Bridge, and, and for those who aren't familiar, uh, if you could share the story associated with that. Sure. Um, it's actually called the Goldbrook Covered Bridge in Stowe, Vermont. And it's a pretty well-known little small covered bridge uh, with ghost hunters. Um, 
In fact, it's so popular that the local police there are well aware every single night there's going to be a slew of people out there with cameras and audio recorders and, and such trying to capture activity. Mm-hmm. Um, but the basic story is that uh, a young bride named Emily was, well, I, let me preface this by saying there's also a couple versions of the story. The most well-known is that uh, a young bride-to-be named Emily was on her way to her wedding when her horse carriage wrecked on the bridge and she was thrown off and killed. There's a second version of that story that she actually went to the wedding and the uh, husband-to-be didn't show up, so she went back to the bridge where they would often meet and hang out, and when he never showed up, she hung herself there. And then there's a third version of the story in which the, the husband actually hangs himself first, and then she comes, finds his body, and then she hangs herself. But whichever one you believe, uh, people claim that the spirit of Emily now haunts this bridge, and she's kind of an angry spirit, if you've heard any of the stories about her. Well, and we have a lot of those type of stories, though, around here where, you know, there, there always seems to be those tra- – and we talked about this before in the first hour. There always seems to be those tragedies that are associated with them, that are associated with any location. Do you feel like that these traumas, these things that happen, leave an impact on there, be- on these bridges because, you know, because they're so strong, because uh, they mean so much? Or do you think that it's a matter of uh, just more that it's a – it's a quaint legend and a quaint way to keep the legend going is by attaching it to these bridges. Because I, I almost feel like when talking about these stories, the fact that you are dealing with some of the – and you know this as an investigator. You know, you have the running water that can amplify the activity. You have the bridge, which represents a crossing. You know, it's almost like the factors are right for there to be a haunting, but the stories are also so good. You wonder, is it – does the haunting exist because of the backstory, or does the haunting exist because of the factors that allow this activity to keep going? I, I, I think I'm making sense in this question. I'm not sure. <laughs> you are making sense. Um, well, I don't think there's any one answer. I mean, for some bridges, it's definitely a story that's just been attached to the bridge to sort of give us some explanation. But I also think, you know, when you go to the bridges that legitimately get a lot of activity and people really are capturing good, you know, evidence there, that absolutely the environmental conditions are playing a part in that. I mean, one of the things that I've certainly discovered over the years is that a lot of the activities that happen in homes and haunted restaurants and in and wherever tend to be very environmental. And it does seem like, especially with residual-type ghosts, that some dramatic moment was just, you know, passionate enough that that moment in time was just captured by the environment. And more often than not, you know, you take a look around, at, uh, you know, is there a creek nearby, like you're talking about the running water. Um, all those building blocks for basically a battery are in place to sort of uh, hold that information there. Now, with intelligent hauntings, I think the bigger question is, are they trapped by something in the environment? I'm, I'm often curious, you know, is the difference between a home where someone died and there is no ghost to a home where someone died and there is a ghost, is there an environmental difference that's actually trapping them there against their will? And then we deal with that here a lot because 
so many of our haunted locations here have, uh, you know, fieldstone foundations. They have, uh, granite, which is rich in quartz, in the foundation, and that's actually recording and amplifying the energy that happens. So, you know, you can actually find these, these geological factors, these physical factors that actually can play into why these hauntings happen. And I, th- I think with, with bridges, the water is certainly part of it. There was some question in the chat room about, you know, the folklore of how spirits are supposed to not be able to cross running water, but then, you know, the, the pseudoscience of it all shows us that that running water actually does charge things up and actually makes activity, uh, happen a little bit more prominently. Absolutely. I mean, at this point, um, if anything in the ghost hunting world has been sort of accepted by the community, it's that spirits are most likely, you know, based around electromagnetic fields, some sort of electricity. And we all know that water definitely conducts electricity. Um, and as you say, even acting sort of as a battery of sorts, it can actually even amplify it. Um, yeah, I mean, but I was reading some of the stuff in your chat room, too. I didn't. I had never heard of, of ghosts being turned back by water, um, but I had heard that about vampires. <laughs> I said no. I had heard it about spirits, about them not. You know, if you if you're being chased by something, if you can get to water, they kind of become trapped uh, by it. And I actually had shared that story just recently. We did an event uh, in the Bridgewater Triangle where I was stationed at a park all night that had a little tiny covered bridge. I'm talking like maybe like a, a 10-foot crossing of this little tiny covered bridge, but that was one of the things that I told everybody. I was like, you know, one of the folklore things that I've heard is that, you know, spirits supposedly can't follow you across running water, so if something's chasing after you, run to the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> I turned that, off your microphone, Moniz, because you're eating tacos. I still haven't turned on your microphone because you're still eating tacos. Did you swallow? Yes. Okay, now you can talk. What about the river sticks? That's that's just an it's just an album from the seventies, Monies. Go back to eating your tacos. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but I'm teasing that, you. that that's one of the earliest folklore legends. Uh, you know, uh, crossing to the other side was being taken by Carolyn across the river sticks. But you're talking at that point. You're, well, the river was you're in, act, the, the, river you're in was, the underworld, right? But the river was supposed to act as the barrier between the living and the dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back to my tacos. All right, yeah. You, you, <laughs> I'll turn your microphone back down. Sorry, I didn't feed everybody before the show, so they mutinied on me and ran to Taco Bell. So, did I? Are you still with us, Rich? Oh yeah. Okay, I didn't want to make sure I didn't turn down the wrong slider. Uh, in, in oh, looking, in, in looking at some of these stories, though, and in, in, in going through some of these, a lot of them, as we talked before, you know, they they have a melodramatic story behind them. They have a highly romanticized story behind them. Were there any that, as you're writing them, you said, "Wow, that this 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 is a sca- this is a place I would not want to go." Were any of these stories actually, you know, terrifying? Yeah, I mean. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Cold Creek Bridge story in Ojai, California. No, I don't think I have. But uh, this particular bridge has got some bizarre things attached to it. And I could see why maybe somebody going here would be uh, a little intimidated. Um, it's on uh, Creek Road in Ojai Valley in, in California. It's really close to a county park. Um, I think it's called uh, Camp Comfort County Park. But this particular bridge has a whole slew of stories attached to it. You do have ghost stories um, as far as, like, I think there's a headless motorcycle rider that's been seen driving across the bridge. 
Um, and there's also been what looks like sort of a phantom hitchhiker walking along and people stop and say, do you need a ride? And then they, they disappear. But even more interesting is this particular bridge is known for a couple of different entities. One is called Charman, which appears to be this entity that appears to people that looks like a burnt person. Whoa. And some people have conjectured that it's a spirit of a person who, who burned alive in the area, though there's no, been no factual story to support that. Um, some think it's something uh, more non-human type of an entity that's in the area. And then if that's not crazy enough, you also have what they call the Ojai Vampire, um, to go back to your vampire stories in water. Um, but back in the 1800s, when they were just inhabiting the area, uh, a lot of people noticed their cattle was being, they were finding their cattle drained of blood. And then the story goes, eventually a couple of children turned up with, with the blood. And so they went looking around and they found this stone tomb in the woods, uh, guarded by a black dog. They killed the dog, they staked the vampire, and everything stops. However, off and on, over the 1900s, people have on occasion claimed to see what looks like this weird combination of ghost and vampire, almost like a spectral apparition of a vampire standing in the trees watching them. Um, and quite a few investigators in California have made the effort to go out to Camp Comfort Park and sort of explore and look for this tomb. But as far as I know, it's, it's not been covered yet or found. Ooh, that's that's still there's enough going on there that I would probably uh, I'd probably swim across there rather than take the bridge. Uh, we do have a caller on the line that I totally forgot to take. I apologize uh, for whoever is waiting online. Uh, good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Rich Newman. How are you? Hello. Are you on the air with us? Okay. Hello. Hello. Hi. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I know what I'm about to ask has always been considered fiction and legend, and I was introduced to it as a child, probably in middle school in the late 60s, but have always considered it one of my favorite stories. And it was uh, recently introduced as a TV series a few years ago, so my question is, which is silly, but is there any truth in the legend of Sleepy Hollow where Ichabod Crane meets the headless horseman on that bridge? Good question. I've never heard um, of that story being attached to an actual bridge or a person. I think, honestly, that the consensus at this point is that it's sort of an, uh, sort of a gathering of a lot of different legends and tales that were happening in New England at the time. Oh, um, I'm, I, I know that there's, a, you know, even back then there were bridges that were thought to be haunted. Um, there were cautionary tales given out to children about going down to such bridges, you know. If, you know um, I'm, I'm not aware of there being a historical piece of fact um, about a particular bridge that they actually named after. Do you know more about this? Uh, you know, I am just uh, did a quick Google search uh, here, and there is apparently there is some truth to the story. I mean, some local legends that helped inspire Washington Irving, uh, that uh, the fact that there were German mercenaries that used to come through there when the Hessian soldiers were there during the Revolutionary War, that the Dutch settlers of the area, they particularly did not like the German mercenaries, so they would tell stories about uh, 
ruthless German horsemen who killed without discretion. So it was kind of a story that uh, became something that they would tell to kind of scare the kids and to kind of, you know, demonize these Hessian soldiers. And that at one point a headless corpse of a Hessian soldier was found in the area and later buried by a local family in an unmarked grave in the old Dutch burial ground. So, I mean, maybe there's at least some truth to it, but, uh, it, you know, if it is, I'm sure, as with everything, you know, the legend becomes greater than the actual facts that inspired it. I do think it's very interesting. Oh, well, I thank you very much for the call. Thank you. And sorry to make you wait so long on hold. I, I, I just kind of, I forgot. <laughs> I was like, go, go to the call next. And then I just started going down another tangent. So thank you for your patience and for your question. And for listening. Have a great night. And if anybody else would like to call in, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Uh, Rich, one of the stories in the book is, it's funny because... You have a story about Colt State Park in Rhode Island, in Bristol, Rhode Island, and there, you know, there's a bridge in, as part of that park, and there's always been legends that have been associated with that park, and it's it's funny because you write about one of them uh, being the pair of ghostly girls who were thought to have drowned on the beach that are frequently seen mm-hmm. in that area. I work as a sports writer here for the local paper, and there's a lot of softball tournaments that happen at Colt State Park. And I can't tell you, it's probably been at least four or five different coaches that I've talked to that once they find out that I'm into the paranormal, they say, you know, one time we were at Colt State Park, and either they saw or somebody on the team reports seeing these little girls over by the beach. And I just always think that that's weird because it's not like they went on a website and read these stories. They just, they're telling me about this strange thing that they happened. And I have to tell them, listen, that's the legend that's associated with there. And, uh, and you talked about it in the book. Oh, yes. Um, I, and actually the, the paranormal group that I contacted up there, I'd have to, I don't remember offhand what the, what the name of the group is. Actually, they're one of the TAPS affiliated groups. Um, was, was actually telling me the story more about the ghost that's in the, uh, like the park office. Mm-hmm. There's supposed to be um, a ghost in the park office, and they were sort of, and then somehow the, the the bit about the bridge on the trail came up, and then I was like, oh well, it's too bad that the ghost isn't hanging out by the bridge because you know that's the book that I'm working on, and then the story about the girls came out. So yeah, uh, and since then, you're not the first person who's actually said um, brought that story up and talked about those girls. And well, actually, when I've heard it, they've usually only seen one. But it's you know it's it's still the fact that you know there's a there's a girl that they've reported seeing there and and it's again these are people who usually I don't want to say mock me but you know they they tell me the story almost in jest but they've actually had these experiences and I think you know that it's one of those things where if enough people are telling me the story I'm going to tend to believe that they're they're really seeing it because they have no reason to make it up and certainly one coach isn't talking to another coach saying let's fool the ghost guy and tell him the story so it's an, it's enough to make me you know think that there is actually something to that story another one that comes from Rhode Island um, and I've become pretty familiar with this story because we do a stage show uh, called An Evening of Ghost Stories New England Legends and one of the storytellers that's involved in the show is Andrew Lake and he tells the story of the Grange Hall ghost in, uh, in Moosup Valley, Rhode Island. And when 
I found out we were talking about haunted bridges, that's the first thing that popped into my mind, is the story of the Grange Hall ghost who is seen by this bridge over near the cemetery in uh, in Moosup Valley. And, and I immediately just went to, to Andrew's description and, and the storytelling of that ghost. And uh, that's one of those stories that it just, it seems like what we're talking about, where it could just be a typical road ghost story. But then you do a little more digging into the research and you realize there actually is a true story behind it. Yeah, and that's also a story that's particularly compelling about like what we were talking about with perhaps rather than the spirit saying, oh, I just really like this spot, so I'm hanging out here for eternity, um, sort of maybe being trapped in the environment because that particular spirit is seen by the bridge. It's been seen over at that Tyler Cemetery nearby. Um, I have they or have they not seen it in a library there? It, the librarian has reported seeing it outside the library, yes. Right, and then Grange Hall itself. So it does seem like this particular entity just kind of roams the area right there. And, and Stephanie, you've actually been out there, right? I have been out there. Um, it's like right on the border of Connecticut. So it was really far, and we happened to be out there already. So... Um, Andy had brought me out there and just showed me the different places as to where um, he had been seen. And Andy actually had a couple of experiences himself Mm -hmm. in hearing different things and actually linked it back to another ghost story and believes that the the two of them are actually connected. It's the same ghost. That it's actually, it was, um, if I remember right, there was uh, a factory or something or there, there was some sort of, Oh, was it the gold mine? Yes. The gold mine and, uh, and, <laughs> and the shovel. And so that this ghost that's seen outside the Grange Hall might have actually been one of the guys that had invested in the gold mine and had come up short and was ruined financially by it. And now his spirit is seen roaming with the broken shovel uh, yes. a- across that bridge. <laughs> yep. Um, and Andy actually had heard the... Uh the shovel dragging on the pavement while he was out there and he was actually really freaked out by it did some research went to historical documents and um linked the two together so there's a little bit more first-hand info for you for some of the the legends that are in the book anyway absolutely i mean i'm curious so do people generally that go there investigate do they think that the ghost in granger hall is the same spirit that's sort of walking around the shovel outside as far as I know, not many people have investigated it, but um, our friend Andrew, who's a local author in the area, um, and is pretty much a historian of all of Rhode Island, um, had investigated it himself just to kind of check out the legend and had some experiences when he went out there and digging into um, historical documents had found um, that other people in the past had um, linked it back to this, but the apparition itself had been seen with a um, shovel on its back. So yeah, it's, it's and there. I think it was like the next street over was where the right. it's the mine had been. <laughs> so in, in the cemeteries there and everything. Yep. So it is kind of all connected right there. So you know that's but that's one of the things that as as a, as a writer, as you're putting all these stories together, Rich, you must love the fact of when you start to see the connections amongst these stories that other people weren't putting together. You know, they're, they're hearing these stories, but they're not connecting the dots. Like, you had mentioned, you know, the, the, the phantom hitchhiker on the bridge, and, and I had mentioned that we have our hitchhiker here, the red-headed hitchhiker of Route 44, not on a bridge, but just seen Actually, on this road. Actually, right where the sign is at uh, 44 in Raynham, 
that is a bridge that is right there. No, it's a little, a little, like, little a, yeah. like a like a little creek crossing yeah. type bridge. So, you know, our and it's it's the same story, and we've been exploring the story for years because it happens all along Route 44. It's not just in our area. This this ghost is reported in other places and on other roads as well. You know, we heard about it on another Route Route Six here locally as well. So, it's almost like these characters, these these archetypes, exist in in these stories. Maybe because there's a certain type of spirit that's drawn to these places, or maybe because it's just what we want to believe as as the living, we want to kind of create these certain types of ghosts. I think it's a little bit of both, and for sure a lot of the last, because, I mean, it's that human need to understand what's happening that we, we sort of, a lot of times we relate, you know, mysterious things and paranormal things that happen to us, um, and it's something we can understand, and if we can come up with, you know, a handful of generic stories, you know, the forlorn mother who who's haunting because she misses her child, the dead person who who died instantly and didn't realize they died. Um, these are the stories we run into, you know, over and over and over again. And I think it is because we just, we want to sort of understand not only what we're seeing and hearing and experiencing in these places, but I think part of us sort of feel sorry for these ghosts you know they're they're sort of trapped there and so we want to kind of know their story uh shiver just went down my spine a little bit here as i was going through the, the chapter uh you know i'm just looking through the chapter that you have on the the, the phantom hitchhikers and associated with bridges and i'm like uh well let's just take a look at some of these locations geographically and kind of Lay it out. So you've got stories from Alabama, from Florida, from Georgia, from Hawaii, from Indiana, from uh, from Kentucky, Louisiana. And I keep rolling down, and I see, as I keep rolling down, the Main Street Bridge, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, right near right. the Slater Mill Historical yeah. Site, which, more or less, that's where Route 44 Ends. can take you to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that story off the top of your head, but the Pateka, Rhode Island Main Street Bridge uh, hitchhiker. Um, uh, I know well, they all... I actually just pulled it up so I could look at it, because, I, yeah, I don't remember all 300 bridges off the right, top yeah. of my head, but, yeah. Um, so this was uh, one that's mistaken for a hitchhiker, but people don't actually think the ghost is a hitchhiker, right? Uh, this one, uh, yeah, they they think that it's uh, it's probably... At least, in, according to the legend, as you report it, that it's probably somebody from the mill uh, who has kind of migrated over to the bridge. Oh, right, right. Because that mill itself is considered a haunted spot, correct? Oh, no. <laughs> we can verify that for you from our numerous uh, events and investigations we've done there. Oh, is that place uh, definitely. And Stephanie, I should mention my co-host Stephanie, is also a psychic medium. But certainly, Stephanie, you can attest to the entire Slater Mill complex. Yeah, it's an interesting place. Definitely interesting. I've had plenty of experiences myself, and um, even when I'm just trying to sit and have a conversation with someone, something happens. So it's certainly certainly a place uh, that's full of activity. See, we got to get you up here, Rich. I was actually not too far from you recently. I've been um, shooting a television show for Fuji TV in Japan, and so... They've been flying me to different places that are known for haunting, shooting this Japanese TV show, 
and I just was up at the uh, Lizzie Borden house about a month ago. <laughs> you're, you're, you were 20 minutes from us. If only we had known. Mm. We could have taken you to I some know. of these sites. And, and we went to Salem, and we basically based out of Boston, so we were just all around you. It's so funny that Japan is very interested in our places. Yeah. The only difference is uh, they, they made him take off his clothes. Cause I've heard that. They do that on all the Japanese yeah. shows, right? Yeah. You have to, like, take off your clothes. <laughs> Apparently they do that in London. <laughs> really? Yeah. They do have a very interesting aesthetic as far as ghosts. I'm learning a lot about the Japanese ideas on ghosts, and they're quite interesting. Their culture um, is very not interesting. Only, they all, I mean, they have very specific ghosts. Yes. I mean, you know, like, uh, we often put them in horror movies, you know, when we figure them out. But, like, I mean, they have people who are haunted by a ghost in particular and it weighs them down and they actually say the ghost rides on their back and there's a specific name for that kind of a ghost um there's also a lot of more happy ghosts in, in japanese folklore which is kind of refreshing to read um they have a, a lot of happy ghosts that inhabit hotels that are former loved ones who just want to be by the family and i think a lot of that comes from their belief in Shinto and sort of the reverence for family and history and and whatnot, but it's it's been refreshing viewpoints, uh, kind of dealing with their ideas on ghosts. And and also they, they you know they pay homage to their ghosts and they pay tribute to them, uh, and, and they're revered more than they are feared. Absolutely, especially in the households that, like I mentioned, are into Shinto. A lot of the older generations certainly they have shrines in the house. Or they, you know, they'll stop by and say, hi, Mom, or hi, Cousin Joe, and, you know, leave a little tribute behind for them just to sort of let them know that they're thinking about them. Um, uh, but a lot of, as I'm learning, kind of like in America, a lot of the younger generations are, are more disillusioned by religion. So especially the religion of Shinto is sort of fading away in Japan. I, I don't know. I just can't wait to see the show because I can't wait to see you investigating and hearing the overly dramatic Japanese dubs they will have of your voice. That was very startling the first time I heard that. They did not tell me that they dubbed me. I was expecting subtitles. And when this voice came on, I don't speak any Japanese. And I was like, oh, my God, what, what the heck is that? Oh, that, that must be great. So It was startling. <laughs> and, and, and what's funny is uh, as, as you were up here and you were investigating the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast, you probably crossed one of our local bridges, the longest bridge in the world, actually, uh, the Braga Bridge, which is right outside the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast. It, why is it the longest bridge in the world? Because it goes from uh, Somerset to Portugal is the joke. But, uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> because they call Fall River like Little Portugal. But, uh, what's, what's funny though is that area, that, that bridge crosses over the Taunton River. And the Taunton River is actually something that is part of what plays into a lot of the, the paranormal legends in the area. There's a club, a private club called the Quickishan Club that's right mm -hmm. on the water there that has a lot of activity. The Lizzie Borden house is a stone's throw from the water. You know, so it, it kind of, plays into a lot of that legend. The Braga Bridge itself has been haunted by nonstop road work for the past decade. Mm, but 20 years, yeah. Other than, other than that, thankfully, you know, we haven't had a lot of stories. But, you know, generally a lot of bridges, the ghost stories that tend to come from them come from suicides, come from people jumping from the bridge. And I'm sure that's a lot of the case with something like the Golden Gate Bridge or the Brooklyn Bridge. They probably have these legends that have developed around them because they are places where people go to end their lives. 
Well, Absolutely. Um, and even in the case of, say, the Golden Gate Bridge, they, uh, as you're kind of crossing that bridge and coming down on one side, there's actually a park underneath the bridge. I think it's actually called the Golden Gate State Park. Mm-hmm. Um, that's known for ghosts. I mean, people are reporting things from this park all the time. And, you know, there's a really high chance that these are probably the poor souls that jumped off the bridge. Um, also is an interesting sort of ghost thing we could spin into. The Golden Gate Bridge is known for a ghost of an entire ship, the SS Tennessee. Um, in the late 1800s, an entire ship ran aground. Um, I don't think anyone actually died in the accident, bizarrely enough, but the ship ran aground, uh, sunk, and ever since then, people have reported seeing the, the SS Tennessee, this ghostly ship going right under the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's actually been reported by other sea vessels that have seen it and calling in saying, hey, there's a ship coming at us. And then they all of a sudden they say, oh, it's not there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we only have a few moments left in the show, and, and obviously we want everybody to go out and to get the book Haunted Bridges. And you can get it. Uh, you can go to uh, paranormalincorporated.com and find links to it there. But you can also get it from the Llewellyn website and from Amazon and forever you get from wherever you get your books online. But I, I do want to ask you this. Out of all the stories, the 300 stories that you covered in the book, is there one that kind of stands out as your favorite? And it doesn't have to be, you know, for any particular reason but just one that sticks with you that uh that will always kind of be your your memory of working on this book for sure when i ran across the story of the bunny man bridge for the first time oh, yeah. all right share I that one with us have you heard of this one i have uh Moni says he has but for the listeners why don't you uh let them know the bunny man bridge is this tiny little it's not even really a bridge. It's a train trestle going over a road, and it's a tunnel that goes through this bridge. But since the 1970s, people have reported seeing, I'm just going to say an entity, in the area around this bridge that looks like a person dressed in a bunny outfit carrying an axe. That's um, there are actually two newspaper articles you can pull up from the 70s from people who reported firsthand that they had ran into this person or entity around Bunny Man Bridge. And from this one, these two articles comes all this different lore and legends. Some people think it's a ghost. Some people think it's a, it's a crazy lunatic. Some people have said in the 1800s um, they shut down a local mental asylum, and it was two people who lived in the woods that lived off of, of rabbits, and they would hang the carcasses yeah. in the area. And then when they passed away, their ghosts now walk around looking like this bizarre mix of bunny and human being. Um, it's all weird. It's all crazy. And what's so cool about it is you can pull up the actual newspaper articles. Um, the Fairfax County Public Library in Virginia has a whole thing about it. You can pull up and look at it, and it's just a really cool story. Now, the bridge is uh, defunct, uh, if I'm not mistaken. It doesn't function anymore as a uh, actual bridge tr- for trains, correct? The train goes kind of over the top. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you really can't get up on top of it. But, again, the, the bridge is almost more of just like the epicenter of the activity. You can you can find the bridge. There's still a little road that drives through it. I, have they closed the road? They may have even closed the road. Um, 
But if you can make your way to the bridge, it's in Fairfax County, Virginia. Um, that area, that entire area right there is where people say they run into the bunny man and that they find on occasion what looks like rabbit carcasses uh, hanging from trees. Um, people have heard weird screams and cries at night that they think the bunny man. And like I say, it, the, the story changes from one witness to the next. One person will say it looks like a crazy person. The next will say it looks like it's a ghost. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's one of those really weird paranormal stories and it's stuck with me since writing the book. Sounds like another place where I'll just try to avoid at all costs. <laughs> but that's what's great about this is, it, you know, it, it gives you kind of, uh, you know, you have 300 ghost stories here to tell, but it also kind of gives you an insight to America, to the people of these communities and, and just the type of, uh, you know, the type of culture and society that have developed around them reflected in the kind of ghost stories that they tell. Absolutely. I mean, that's why I even, I, I, it's called Haunted Bridges, but I even put a chapter in there, you know, there's just people that ran into creatures at bridges. People have had UFO sightings around bridges. Um, and, of course, like we've talked about, real human tragedy that happened at bridges. So, yeah, I mean, all these different stories from all over the country, uh, it's really neat for me to be able to sit back and learn that history and read all these individual stories and learn about all these different uh, things that have happened across the country. And I don't think I'll ever get tired of it. Well, uh, we certainly will not get tired of hearing more of these stories. So when, when Haunted Bridges chapter, uh, Volume 2 comes out, <laughs> you can come back on. Or, you know, the next time that you uh, have something that comes out, definitely keep us up to date with all of your work. Uh, because not, not only do we want to continue to read your work and discuss things with you, but we really, really are looking forward to hearing more bad Japanese dubs. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, I just, I just turned in my latest book, which is on Haunted Civil War sites. Excellent. So maybe that'll be our next discussion. Absolutely, 100%, because we didn't even really get into that. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, so we'll definitely set aside a, a whole night where we can talk just about that. Absolutely. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us, Rich. You have a great night. You too. Thanks for having me. Take care. That is Rich Newman. He's the author of Haunted Bridges. You can get it uh, from Llewellyn or from wherever books are sold online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those sites. You'll find it everywhere. Uh, and you can certainly... Uh, explore the web series that he's talking about, about uh, the Ghosts of War sites, the Civil War sites that are haunted, right on ParanormalIncorporated.com as well. So, yeah, that'll definitely be. I know, Stephanie, that's something that you're really interested in, so haunted Civil War sites. Yes. So well, we, I love history. So We can get really deep into that some night just like on its that. own. And we will do that. We'll be back next Saturday night for another edition of Spooky South Coast, as we do each and every Saturday night. And if you ever miss an episode, you can always download them on iTunes, uh, watch them on YouTube, wherever you find podcasts, wherever you find online videos, you will find Spooky South Coast because we put them on all the time. Uh, next week, our guest will be John Stedman. So you can join us for next week's show. And we will make sure, too, that uh, we get these up pretty quickly because it's the holiday season. You don't have time. You don't have time to wait for us. You've got too much stuff going on. You want your spooky South Coast while you're out there doing your shopping and all that other stuff. We will hook you up. And, of course, Matt puts out the spooky clips all week long on YouTube, so you can check them out there. Make sure you follow us all across social media. And remember, there's nine tickets, I think, left for our March 4th Lizzie Borden event. So get those now. And then once those are sold out, we'll start uh, dishing out the rooms in the order that they were 
were purchased. So you you might have the chance to absolutely stay in the house for a discounted rate, but you can certainly come out and investigate with us. We'll be back next week. Stay spectacular.